Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now, T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. Um, this is actually sort of an extra special episode. It wasn't something we were planning on doing, but it's um, it's actually a follow-up with the recent events and the discussion about the possible use of chemical weapons in sarin in Syria, we thought it was a good opportunity to follow up on the uh, episode 7 that we did on organophosphates and chemical weapons and nerve gases. If you haven't checked that out, I'd highly recommend checking it out. Um, but this episode is really going to be about what's going on now in terms of testing and confirmation. And uh, And so we've got a great discussion coming up with myself and Steve Bird. Those of you who are listening, uh, you can uh, find out more at TalksTalk.org, also where you can listen to Episode 7, which will tell you more about nerve agents. TalksTalk is a production of the Division of Toxicology at the University of Massachusetts and Department of Emergency Medicine. Hi, this is Matt Zuckerman, and uh, with me today I have Steve Bird, uh, program director and um, uh, esteemed member of the UMass uh, Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine at UMass in Worcester. And um, we're talking today partially as a follow-up to an episode uh, we had a little while ago. Some of you might have heard it. There's been a lot of discussion in the news and on the radio and news, those things called newspapers and television about um, uh, use of chemical weapons in Syria, and whether or not you agree with it or disagree with it or the politics of it, the toxicology of it I find really fascinating. And we did um, a great job, I highly recommend that episode, of talking about some of the uh, clinical effects and, um, and sort of toxicology of organophosphate nerve agents. But now there's all this uh, discussion about testing for these agents. And unlike, I think, uh, like lots of things in toxicology, everyone assumes that there's just a machine that you put something in and then you get a, sort of a green light or a red light to tell you uh, if something was there. But as a toxicologist, I try to wrap my mind around what they're actually doing in these secret government labs, both in the U.S. and the U.K., Portland down and elsewhere. And then I realize that we have our very own expert here. And so, uh, Steve, thanks for thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, so, so, so why don't you, um, what are they doing? So they're getting samples. I've heard of clothing samples. I've heard of soil samples. I've heard of hair and blood. And what is going on? What do they do, um, when they suspect a nerve agent exposure? Well, that's a good question. And it depends on what group is doing it. I've been in contact with some of the investigators who do this testing, you know, my understanding is that the U.S. has done testing, the U.K. has done testing, and then the U.N. is doing testing as well. And their testing is much more, more comprehensive, if you will. The initial reports from the U.S. were that they had tested uh, 
what I had heard is clothing and hair and perhaps some blood or urine, although that wasn't necessarily confirmed. And the interesting thing is you have to keep in mind how quickly do the chemicals that were used, and we're assuming they were used, break down. Right. I think that's that's a big thing. So and that's that's an important part of toxicology is are you looking for the chemical substance in situ or are you looking um, for the effects in the body? And that's true at a lot of times. You know, if somebody comes in with a baggie of something in the ED, um, uh, we usually focus on testing the patient. But you can also sometimes test um, the substance before it's in the patient. And, yeah, these are not uh, stable substances, correct? So specifically, we're talking what we've been talking about in the news is um, uh, sarin or it's military, uh, uh, military um, abbreviation is GB. And for the folks at home, if you ever hear a two-letter abbreviation for a chemical, it's probably a military agent. But yeah, so, so how do they test for uh, sarin? And, it's, and it, it's not that stable, correct? That's correct. Well, first of all, the clinical effects of the patients are the findings that we see when we see the patient are much what we talked about in that one episode of Talks Talk, um, salivation, decreased mental status, severe sweating, vomiting, diarrhea, and a suppression of an enzyme in the blood called acetylcholinesterase. So if you find a patient with those symptoms and you find a severely depressed acetylcholinesterase level or activity, then one presumes that they've been poisoned with the with a nerve agent or an organophosphorus pesticide. And my understanding is the patients did have depressed acetylcholinesterase activity. How soon after they were poisoned were those determined or tested? I don't know. Okay. And so that's, that's an excellent point. So that's uh, essentially a functional test. So it's looking at the effect of the chemical on the enzyme and that will last for, I mean, assuming that the person survives, that will last for uh, weeks because you have to regenerate the enzyme. That's correct. You have to make more of the enzyme. Your body has to make more. And then the other thing about that test, though, is even if that test were low, it wouldn't necessarily specifically indicate sarin, correct? That's correct. That is proof that some acetylcholinesterase inhibitor was used or that patient was exposed to an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So then the next question, and the one that the U.S. and the U.K. and the U.N., They'll start with you. How about that? Well, they're all united. That is true. They are all united, although apparently all united. There's not a great triumvirate. You're a united triumvirate right now, is my understanding. Just watching uh, President Obama at the G20 summit. But anyway, so these investigators are now deter- trying to determine what chemical was used. And they're hampered to a large degree because the time from the poisoning or the exposure until now has been so great. It's a good general rule whenever you're trying to test something that if you can test it very proximate to the exposure, close to the exposure, the better off you're going to be both in the sensitivity and detecting it as well as likely the accuracy or if you're trying to quantitate, actually see how much of a chemical is there. So they're struggling with that right now. So what are they testing for? Sarin well, of the military nerve agents, they're really, there's, there's five-ish, but really three big ones. There's sarin, soman, or soman, as people pronounce it, and VX. And we know enough about these 
that it's not likely to be VX. VX is a thick, viscous fluid, much like motor oil, which isn't easily aerosolized or uh, directed towards an individual. And it's often thought to use, its use would be to deny an enemy territory. We also know that sarin is likely the most easily made or most easily volatilized, and that was used in Matsumoto, Japan, and Tokyo, Japan previously in terrorist attacks. So the presumption is that it's sarin for a lot of physical, chemical, and ease of use reasons, but it could be others like Somen or VX. Now, sarin has a very short half-life. If it is exposed to moisture or water, it breaks down relatively easily. And so that water breaks down the phosphorus fluoride bond in the agent. That's correct. Okay. It does break down that phosphorus fluoride bond. And the main chemical that is made after the breakdown of sarin is called IMPA, which is isopropyl methyl phosphonic acid, IMPA. So what they're likely doing in all of the samples they're taking is looking for IMPA because they sarin certainly is not going to be detected or it's not going to be easily detected, particularly in bodily fluids in blood or urine. Perhaps it would be detectable on hair, which I understand they're testing, or clothing. Okay, okay. So essentially for hair and clothing then they would they would take the clothing from and some of these are first responders, so some of I mean we tend to trust our own a little more than others and the chain of custody can be a little bit better. And some of these are just taken from the site. So they take the hair, they take the clothing, they cut it up, they put it in sort of a solvent extraction, and then they would test the solvent to see if they see the actual parent product, maybe, because in theory um, that won't have come in contact with water. It won't have broken down. But then they also try, and you're saying, maybe test the blood and or urine for um, the inactive uh, but more stable product, isopropyl methyl phosphonic acid, or IMPA. Um, I think they were a rap group in the late 80s, and they look for that, which will last longer in the presence of water. That's correct. There's also... And IMPA, it's important to realize, is prima facie evidence of sarin. That is what sarin is broken down into. Other nerve agents are not. So if IMPA is found, that means there was sarin. However, even IMPA breaks down over time, and it breaks down further into MPA, or methylphosphonic acid. MPA is not prima facie evidence of sarin if it is found because other agents are broken down into MPA, including VX, SOMEN, and um, and other nerve agents like cyclosarin. Okay, and then the process um, never goes backwards because these are enzymatic processes. MPA is never turned into uh, IMPA. That's correct. Okay. And it's, so I guess a akin, a more familiar toxicology equivalency would be if you're testing somebody um, and you wonder if they have a heroin exposure and you see um, heroin, which is diacetylmorphine, and you see monoacetylmorphine, then that is, as you would say, prima facie, prima facie evidence of heroin exposure. But if you see morphine, which is a further metabolite of heroin, you don't necessarily know that the person used heroin because there are other products that can be degraded to that product. That's correct. Okay. Now that, so those tests 
the IMPA and MPA, that, that's likely what they're looking for. But they can also look for parent compounds like sarin in other ways. Now here, or in Syria rather, it's not likely the case, but there are field deployable units that the military and others have that can test air samples or liquid samples for the presence of nerve agents. Now, clearly several weeks after the exposure, that is not going to be um, applicable, but I don't, I just want to get the message across that you don't only just have to look for IMPA or MPA, but if you're around or very proximate to the time of an exposure or an attack, you can look for direct evidence of the nerve agents. Okay. And then also, um, because the nerve agents are so unstable, I understand that sometimes there are additives, um, uh, to the, uh, to the substance to sort of prolong its shelf life, prolong its half life. Things like, Diisopropyl carbodamide or DIC and um, tributylamine, just things. And I guess if you were to find some of the additives, while that would not be definitive proof, it would further add to the evidence that someone is trying to stabilize a chemical agent. Yes, of course, that would depend on you know how they made the chemical weapons and what they used to kind of store them. I suspect that most countries do this differently. They also may have more highly concentrated chemical warfare agent um, for storage and use a more dilute form or vice versa. So it's, it's hard without knowing exactly what kind of munitions Syria had. It's a little hard to comment on that. Okay. And then Steve, have you heard about this? I just did a little searching myself and there was a little article from, uh, from I think chemistry and biological interactions, 2013, a 10 minute point of care assay for detection of blood protein addicts resulting from low level exposure to organophosphate nerve agents. And I think this is a proprietary device, but it was organotox and it's a, a bedside or point of care testing for nerve agents. Um, and it was, they spiked the samples. So they essentially added, um, sarin to, uh, to serum samples. And they found that the device was 80% sensitive for detecting their threshold of uh, sarin, as well as Soman, uh, Taboon, and VX. Have you heard about this uh, point-of-care testing? Well, certainly point-of-care testing has been around for, for probably 50 years, but the looking at protein addicts of the nerve agents is relatively new and not easily done. That was another test that I was going to mention, so it's nice of you. Thanks, Matt, for preempting me on that. So looking at other, of course, companies are going to look at new and better ways of doing testing, particularly for highly sensitive issues such as chemical weapons. But since we know that the parent compounds like sarin are not easily detected, IMPA may not be there. So they're looking at other ways to determine what chemical agent is present. And so looking how proteins are changed or connected to or adsorb these chemical nerve agents is another way of trying to test them. You know, though I wanted to mention one other thing, Matt, and that is the presence of MPA. While IMPA is prima facie evidence of sarin, MPA can come from other nerve agents. I think it's important to realize, and of course I don't know what values they're finding, but if MPA is found in every sample, while that doesn't say it was sarin or soman or VX or cyclosarin, it says it tells them there was a nerve agent used. So I think that's critically important as well. 
We may not know exactly which one, but we can tell there was a chemical nerve agent used. No, that's that's an important point to make. And then I also know, um, I mean, Steve, one of the reasons why you're an expert on some of on uh, this sort of field or this area isn't just an interest in nerve agents, but um, but really uh, you yourself have clinically seen exposure to organophosphates, and you've seen sort of exposure in the much more common way in terms of agricultural exposure from from pesticides. That's correct. And so it seems like I'm, so this is some pretty advanced technology we're talking about here. Um, a lot of this because, um, uh, we, we have a very industrious sort of military testing, uh, capability. That's right. These kind of tests that, that are being performed now are difficult, laborious, are not typically used in a pa- in a single patient scenario, whether you're in the developing country or frankly in the U.S. It's also important to understand how long this testing is going to take. And I I suspect that the UN tests are going to take many days, if not a few weeks, to verify because they'll run tests in likely in triplicate. They will have specimens set to different labs and the, the labs will receive these specimens and not know if they're from Syria or if they're controls. They may be, they may get a piece of soil or a sample of soil from Syria and also a sample of soil from Cincinnati. And they won't know which is which. And so that will be important for labs to not only be able to identify if there is MPA or IMPA or something else in the correct samples, but also to be re- to report samples that should be negative, make sure that they are reported as negative and nothing is detected. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're saying that the, that the arid soil of Cincinnati might replicate the, uh, might replicate the Syrian soil. Um, although hopefully Cincinnati has not had any exposure to, uh, to chemical weapons. At least that's what we hope. That's correct. That's correct. Um, although any, I've never, I've never been to Cincinnati. Oh, it's lovely. It's a lovely city. It's really great. Um, cause you've got the river right there. Nice people. It's a beautiful town. Oh, I'll have to go there sometime. And they have the Cleveland Browns football team. In Cincinnati? Oh no, that's Cleveland. What I'm, they have the Bengals, the Bungles or the Bengals. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. It it is Ohio. It is Ohio. Any any other um, uh, comments on on testing or types of testing? Um, it's it seems like also this is this is the kind of testing where um, you can't just call them up and ask them what they're doing. Uh, there's a certain cloud of secrecy around what we what even we will admit we can do. That's correct. I've tried to find out a bit more specific details about exactly what is being tested and how they're doing it and what exactly they're looking for. Uh, and I was able to get a little bit of information from some people, but, but not a lot. And I think one, they're probably exceedingly busy right now doing that. Uh, and two, they probably aren't going to release at least to the general public exactly what tests they were doing. Um, but I hope that we are given if everything is positive that is, they find either the parent compound or metabolite or something. I, I hope we are given some specifics about what was detected, just so inquiring minds we want to know. Right, absolutely, and that's the thing. And this is this is a, a worldwide tragedy of the hundreds that have died, and and um, and the more that may come. Um, but it's also a great example of how toxicology is everywhere in everything. And as a bit of a tox geek, my second or third question whenever I hear something like this is, I wonder how they, I wonder how they did that. 
and I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and sort of lend your expertise to this to sort of explain a little bit more about what is going on at um, Porton Down and, and some of our um, some of our military testing sites and, and at the UN, and I think it provides some insight and also um, helps us understand why it's so hard. I feel like sometimes there's an expectation that we should be able to test for everything all the time, whenever, and uh, when you actually dive into the details of what's going on, you realize how, how incredible it is that we can do what we can do. That's right. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today, Matt. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks. And for those of you that enjoyed the episode but didn't hear the first one, where we really go into a lot more detail about um, the types of organophosphate compounds and, and the clinical exposures and toxicities and treatment, treatment being the most important thing for really a clinician listening to this, I would highly recommend that episode. I'll put a link back to that episode on the website. This is Steve Bird. Signing out. Signing out. And Matt Zuckerman also. Goodbye, everybody. Concludes this episode of Tox Talk. I want to thank you for joining me. Once again, Tox Talk is a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter and get more information about our episodes at our website. That's toxtalk.org, T O X T A L K.org. If there's any particular topics you'd like to hear us talk about, just drop a line uh, by going to our website or emailing us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off.